Maybe you've heard something like this before. You know, I tried Christianity, but it just didn't work for me. I mean, have you ever heard something at least close to that or some version of that? Uh, you know, in the time in which we live, there are many people leaving the faith. It's quite the trend in our day. But of course, the question is why, you know, this whole ex-evangelical movement you know, why is it people are leaving the church? Well, they've done the surveys and they've asked the questions and it comes down, you know, obviously to various different reasons, but there are some pretty key takeaways. Uh, when the surveys are taken, it often comes down to one of several things, either some sort of dislike for certain things that the church has done to somebody, you know, maybe they had a bad experience uh, with fellow Christians or some sort of abuse of leadership, things that are very real and obviously can leave a mark on people. But it often comes down to disliking certain distasteful things, either about the Bible or about the God of the Bible, right? Certain teachings that have fallen on hard times, you know, teachings like hell or judgment uh, or certain sort of ethics that God demands that fly in the face of our current culture. And, you know, if God's going to be like that, if he's going to require those sorts of things, or if he's going to say those, those sorts of people are sinning, then I don't want to be a part of it. But quite often, it's a lot less theological. A lot of times it ends up being theological, but what starts the domino uh, falling is often quite personal, that God has done something that has disappointed the person. You know, God didn't act the way that they expected. He didn't give them what they had, you know, asked for or hoped for or dreamed for. And depending on what sort of teaching you've come up under, you know, a lot of times we can be put in a position where we really believe that if we want something, then it is God's both desire and prerogative to give it to us. You know, not in the, you know, health and wealth sort of way, but in the, you know, Delight in God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, you know, ask anything in Jesus' name, and he'll do it. And so we, you know, try to arrange our affections in a certain way, and we say, well, if I'm loving God, then he at least owes me these sort of outcomes. And if those outcomes don't arise, then oftentimes disappointment and even bitterness and, in the worst-case scenario, a turning from God and finding other avenues to go down. God, unfortunately, can come to be viewed, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as some sort of, you know, great Santa in the sky, uh, whose really main job is to make sure that we are contented in this life and that the things that we desire that are good are given to us, or at least preserved if we already have them. You know, some sort of God that, you know, where we have this wish fulfillment uh, that, that he's kind of at our beck and call to fulfill. But what is God like? I mean, what sort of results does he guarantee when we sign up? <laughs> I mean, what kind does he actually guarantee in the Bible? Not what kind maybe we were promised as we came in. Well, we want to see that this morning. And the first thing we want to see is God in a box. God in a box. You see in this first section of our text, this very quick announcement that Israel has gone off to war, that one of the big three enemies 
in Israel's history. The Philistines are there. We, we know them from the book of Judges. They have been a problem for a while. And it seems that the aggression has continued and Israel is marching out to meet the Philistines for battle. And it doesn't take long for us to see that they are soundly, you know, defeated. 4,000 people die. And it says we're, we're told quite literally they're defeated before the Philistines. And as soon as the report comes back to, you know, the camp, to the elders, the elders begin to ask questions and notice how they frame the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? That's a good question. And it shows that the elders of Israel know more than what we may have uh, thought beforehand. Notice the author doesn't say the Philistines defeated them. It says they were defeated before in the presence of the Philistines. And the elders know that somehow God has something to do with it. I mean, why would God do this to us? And especially if you are growing up in Israel in this time period, and you know what the covenant says, that God has promised as the God of the covenant to be a God who fights on your behalf. And so if something goes wrong in battle, then really the charge does lie at one level at the feet of God, if he's promised to protect you. So what does it mean if you're God's people and you lose? Well, it's a great question. Either it means that, you know, God's weak and he couldn't compete with the Philistine gods, or there's some other issue in the camp of Israel. I mean, we've seen this before in the Bible. You know, you begin the book of Joshua and you see, uh, you know, them taking the same ark out to battle. And they, you know, as they march around Jericho, simply walking around and screaming, they somehow defeat one of the greatest enemies that the land held. And not too long after, they get, you know, completely thumped by an enemy that isn't all that great, the city of Ai. And we find out that the reason they lose is that there was sin in the camp. And so we begin to see this structure that's really clear in the covenant that Moses gave them on Sinai. God said, I'm going to be the one who commits to fight for you. Your enemies are going to become my enemies as long as you obey my voice. And so we see texts like Exodus 23, if you will indeed obey my voice, if you do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. And so when the elders ask, why has the Lord defeated us today? They ask a great question. But you'll notice they don't wait around for an answer. They go straight into action. You know, they, they say, why has God defeated us? And then they go fetch the Ark of the Covenant. They have this as their preeminent solution. So instead of saying, for instance, maybe we should go talk to Samuel the prophet, or maybe we should pray and inquire of the Lord why we didn't have success today in the battle. Or maybe we should look around and see, is there any glaring sin among us that might need to be repented of? Instead, they go and grab the Ark which again, at one level, doesn't sound like a terrible idea. They've done it before. The ark has preceded them in battle. But when we hear it described, we are given clues that this isn't good, that their way of being in this text isn't good. Look at the exact wording. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here, that it may come among us, and that it may save us from the power of our enemies. So the issue 
clearly isn't them. They simply say, let's just go get the box and the box will perform for us. If we have this box that represents God with us, we can't possibly lose. What's odd is they're acting as if God wasn't active in the first battle, which we just learned he was. Why has the Lord defeated us this way? And once they say the, the box comes into camp, they, they believe a particular result has to come to pass. If we get the Ark of the Covenant, then we have to win. Why do we have to win? Well, because it's the Ark of God's covenant to us. And how shameful would it be, we the people of God, with the presence of God, going out to war if we were to lose, you know, and there they are, twisting God's arm. You know, notice the ark's being treated like a, like a good luck charm, you know, like a rabbit's foot. Uh, if we have this, we can't possibly lose. We'll just use it, and when we do, we'll get what we want, you know. You rub the, the Buddha's belly, and you ask a wish. And so their assumption is if we have the Ark of the Covenant, God, God would have to fight for us, wouldn't he? And if God doesn't, I mean, think about that. How, how will that look? What will that do for his reputation among the nations as our God? I mean, he didn't give us victory last time, but this time we're going to cart you out with us so that if we lose, it stains your name along with ours. I mean, what's it say about God and his people and the covenant he's made? His name is truly on the line. You know, God can't not fight on our side now. I mean, what would the neighbors think? And so, as we learn, they take the Ark of the, God, uh, the, Ark of the Covenant with them. Let's look at how it's described. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who's enthroned between the cherubim. Uh, he wants to make sure we know all the titles concerning this ark. It's the ark of a covenant that God made between him and his people. Which God? The God who controls all the armies, which in their minds they're thinking is a good thing. This is the God who always leads armies. And he's the God that sits between the cherubim, which automatically should clue us in to something, mainly where we see cherubim from the beginning of scripture on. It's always a picture of God's holiness and the fact that God dwells in holiness, right? We hear the angels in heaven never stop saying one to the other, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. But the first time we've seen these cherubim in all of scripture, it's after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, God places cherubim to guard the way to his holy space. God is holy and he dwells among the angels who testify and witness and defend his holiness. Well, that wouldn't mean much to us, except the very next thing we read is, and the two sons of Eli were with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. So there we have the holy God, and then this unholy duo walking him, marching him out to war, parading down the street together. And the one thing we know about this God, who's represented by this box, and these two brothers is that God's already told us he wants them dead. Uh, and so the fact that they're leading him out to battle uh, is a bit ominous. You know, it should make us wonder what is about to happen. 
Well, notice the ark comes in, Israel shouts in triumph. The Philistines hear the shout and they're afraid. They, you know, they don't know all the details correctly, but they know them well enough. They're like, this God sent plagues on Egypt in the wilderness, maybe not. But anyway, he was there and he was big and scary. And we know that Egypt's scarier than we are. And this God defeated Egypt. So what's that going to mean for us? And they're not dissimilar to Israel and that both of them believe you just bring your gods with you into the war and whatever you want will happen. But they are dissimilar and at least they're afraid. And you'll notice that Israel is not. Well, the fight takes place. And what happens when you bring God to war? You know, the first result was bad. It only gets worse. We see Israel flees and not 4,000 men now, but 30,000 foot soldiers fall in one day. You know, this brilliant idea of we have the Ark of the Covenant clearly did not pan out the way that they had hoped. But not only do 30,000 fall, notice the Ark is captured and the sons of Eli die. I mean, God gets involved and matters get worse. And what does it look like? I mean, it appears, at least by all physical accounts, that the God of Israel is weak, you know? He's a, he's a loser, at least in this battle, and so much so that he's being carted off by the enemies and he's going to be placed in the temples of their gods, completely put, if you will, uh, in a lower position to the gods of the nations. What do we know? I mean, what do we learn by this? We learn at least this, is that God is so concerned about his holiness that he is not afraid to humiliate himself to uphold it. I mean, his holiness in, in, in this story and in what we see from Scripture is far more of a concern to him than beating up the Philistines. Israel wanted God's power, and so they thought we can just you know, gin it up by making him go with us. But they wanted his power, notice, separated from who he is as God. They wanted this piece of God. We want the powerful God who fights for us, but we don't want to question ourselves concerning what we might have done to anger this holy God who seems to be upset with us. And so we see, at least at the beginning here, God in a box. And the next thing we see then in our text is God in exile. You know, you have this great defeat. It's bad news all the way around. Uh, death everywhere. And then the report is coming back home. So we have this, you know, Sayer coming back. He's covered, you know, in sackcloth and ash. He's screaming his lungs out about what's happened. Eli hears it. So he calls over to get the report. And we have here old, blind, fat Eli. Notice, watching because he trembled concerning what might happen with the ark of God. And into his ears, he hears the uproar of the people and he finally gets the report. And notice the report just goes from bad to worse. You know, sometimes we speak in our vernacular, you know, do you want the good news or the bad news? Uh, this guy only has to offer, you know, bad news and worse news. And so he starts with as good as it gets. And the best news he has is, we were routed today by the Philistines. We lost terribly. And both of your sons died, by the way. And the Ark of God was captured. And it says that the final piece of news 
Eli falls from his seat, literally his throne, and he breaks his neck and he dies. He falls to death under his own weight, which reminds us of how we got here to begin with. It reminds us of the sin that's in the camp, that they have been fattening themselves on the offerings of the people. And here, fat Eli falls from his place, just like Hannah said, right? The mighty have fallen, the, the, the glorious, the weighty fall from their thrones. And so he falls, but it's reminding us that he falls, or, or the way that he dies from that fall reminds us there has been sin that has been polluting Israel for some time. And at the same time, then Phineas's wife, who we learn is with child, when she hears the news of the ark, she goes into immediate labor, which Ryan's maybe hoping for now, um, and bears a son. And before she dies from this childbirth, she has time to name the son Ichabod, which literally means where is the glory, but is given a gloss for us. She tells us what she means by it. She says, the glory has departed for the ark of the Lord has been captured. Notice she isn't sent into labor at the news of her husband's loss or at the loss of her father-in-law, but at the news of the ark being captured. And through these two reports and the two things that take place because of them, Eli falling, the birth of this child, and in particular, the naming of the child, we know what to view as the worst part of what has taken place. The worst part of the story isn't the loss of all the men, and it's not the loss of Eli's sons, but the loss of God. That his glory has gone out from the land, that he is, if once that's been sent out from, into exile, away from his people. I mean, who is Israel? Without the God of Israel. I mean, what do you have if he's not with you? I mean, remember Moses, God said, you know what? You guys go up into the land. I'm staying here. I've had enough of you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us, we're not going. I mean, you're all we have. And now God has left the building and Israel is there without him. Well, if that's God in exile, we come to our conclusion this morning we see then the God of the cross. I mean, what we learn in this story is tremendously important. And that may seem strange. It seems so foreign to us. But saints, uh, this is something that we really do need to take to heart. God is going to show us who he is. Even if it means defeat and humiliation and the loss of his reputation, he will look like a failure to uphold his holiness. He will not allow Israel to worship him falsely or to make him a God in their own image or to use him as some sort of talisman or, or good luck charm. I mean, look at this God. It appears, at least from where we're sitting, that the Philistines can beat him. I mean, that's Israel's view. God lost. That's the Philistines' view at this point. It wasn't before the fight. They knew God was more powerful than them. But afterward, you know, they're willing to take him and put him in the temple of their own gods, feeling like we have somehow subverted the God of Israel. I mean, Eli feels it. The daughter-in-law feels it. But nothing about it's true. God doesn't lose because he's weak. 
And the proof is in the text. And it comes to us when we read that Hophni and Phinehas died in this battle. I mean, this isn't a defeat. It's a fulfillment of God's word. It's exactly what he said was going to happen. He said that these two boys were going to die on the same day because of the way that they had acted in Israel. I mean, this humiliation, if you will, of the ark is exactly what God ordained. And through it, he reveals both his power and his priorities to Israel. He lets them know exactly who he is and who he will not be for them. As soon as we see the death of these two boys on the same day, we realize the ark isn't taken by the Philistines. The ark is given by God to the Philistines. It is God's way of saying to Israel, I do what I want and defending my holiness is far more important to me than baptizing your desires and giving you victory in my name. And so through this capture, he fulfills his purposes. He kills Eli's sons, just like he said he was going to do. He upholds Samuel's word as a prophet of God, just like he said he would do. And he upholds his covenant, which said, if you obey me, then I will defeat your enemies. And if you don't, then you will be defeated by your enemies. The whole thing shouts, I am holy. And I will not be put under your whims and wishes. But it also shouts oddly, and though it looks like weakness, it shows his power. He did everything according to what he had already said. Exactly by his design. I mean, can you see it? Can you see yourself in this text? And I mean that not in some trite way, like, you know, we all act like Hophni and Phineas sometimes. Uh, I mean, this is what we come to celebrate today. What has taken place here? This routing of God. I mean, that is what the cross is. The apparent defeat of God, which is strangely at one and the same time, exactly what he commanded that displays all of his power and gains his ultimate victory over all of his enemies. I mean, on the cross, it appears to the watching world that God is defeated. You know, the Romans have their way and the Jewish leadership has their way. And even the eyes of the disciples, they're so frustrated with how it all ended. We had hoped that he would be the one who came to save Israel. It appears to us as a loss, as he's taken by those who hate God, humiliated and defeated. I mean, why has God allowed the Romans to conquer him? But of course, it isn't the Romans. It's not the Jews. It's not even us. It was God himself. Christ said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I'm going to take it back up again. But perhaps the oddest part of the story of the cross isn't the seeming loss to his enemies, but the fact that it is God's doing. It's exactly what he wanted to happen. It's what he ordained to happen. It's what he said was going to happen long before the story played out. It is troubling because the subject of defeat on the cross is utterly holy. I mean, Israel lost to her enemies precisely because she was not holy. That is what led to this particular disaster. 
But when we look at the cross and we see Jesus there, we see one who has done nothing but obeyed every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Who always said yes to his father. And what is strange is that according to scripture, at least according to the covenant that the the, uh, Israelites were under in Moses, he should be blessed. I mean, think of what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who doesn't do all these things, right? Walk in the counsel of the wicked and sit in the seat of the scornful, but instead the one who delights in the word of the Lord, the one who does that, what happens? He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, bearing fruit in every season. Everything he does will prosper. And then you look up at a cross and see the Holy One forsaken. He looks just like Israel being slaughtered by the enemies of God. The cross screams, not holiness to us, but it screams curse, right? Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. By, By mere sight, you can't look at the cross and judge Christ as holy. It testifies to us of his guilt. I mean, this is how much God wants us to know who he is truly. This is how committed God is to his own freedom and his own holiness. He hates sin so much. He is so other than us. He's so committed to righteousness that he can't simply just let it go. He must judge it. But what is so strange in the display of the cross is that he loves those whom he has set his affections on so much that he won't let them go either. And so what does he do? He is so holy that he curses himself in order to keep his words to sinners who could not hold to the commitments they made. And through that cross is a revelation of God as clear as can be known by people like us. It is a plea. Know me as I truly am. This holy, that I will judge sin to the uttermost. And this gracious, that I will give everything I have in order to redeem those who have failed me time and again. No, he's not a genie in a bottle here to fulfill our wishes. He's not predictable or tame, but he is a God who is unfathomably holy. So holy that a cross is how he wins his victory. He takes sin so seriously that he humiliates and curses himself in order to reckon with it. So So that we might know that this holy God is unfathomably gracious. And though I mean we may not understand him or why he doesn't do what we ask or why he hasn't answered our prayer in the way that we think it should be answered or why he allows hardship into our life that would seem to testify against his kindness, the cross teaches us irrevocably that he can be trusted 
that he's not just holy, he's kind, he's good, he's wise. The cross tells us irrefutably that God is for us, no matter what the facts on the outside say. And just like the ark being captured testified one thing to the people that saw it, and just like the cross to the naked eye would look like the defeat of God, These things are God's way of working, a God who is wiser and holier and far more loving than we could ever imagine. May we put our trust in him afresh this morning. Let's pray.